And that's the question, as I said earlier, here in this room that we want to answer. What is the church? Welcome to those of you who are in the modern service over in the fellowship hall. We are so glad that you are joining us here. And for the next six weeks, as we look at this church at Antioch, in our minds, we want to wrestle with what is the church, but how can we, as the people of Taylor's First Baptist Church, how can we be the church that God has called us to be, and what does that look like? And so today we begin our journey, and actually you began it in your life groups, in your Sunday school classes prior to coming into worship this morning as you began to study what is the church in this church at, at Antioch. And I want us to begin by looking uh, this morning at the story of the church of Antioch and how it began. But before we do that, and you can go ahead and turn there, Acts chapter 11. Go ahead, turn to Acts chapter 11 if you have a copy of the scriptures. There's one right here in this room in the pew rack in front of you, one uh, available. If you need one in the modern worship service, just raise your hand and our deacons will come and uh, give you one of the Bibles there or you can uh, go your, to your digital device. Acts chapter 11, if you're new to Bible study, that's in the New Testament. So if you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts follows the Gospels there. And we see the story of Antioch unfold. We want to uh, go there and then go to First Peter and then we'll be done this morning. But I want to tell you kind of not only the biblical journey, but how I came to uh, this desire to want to see Antioch in a study in this incredible church put in front of our people. It was this summer and I was at the Southern Baptist Convention and I was sitting in a large gathering of all the pastors and leaders and, and people who were gathered there in Columbus, Ohio. And we were listening to David Platt. David Platt is the new head of the International Mission Board. So he's head of our denomination's efforts to get the gospel out all around the world. And he shared the stage with Kevin Ezell, who, was the, uh, who is the head of the North American Mission Board, head of church planning and missionaries here within the United States and Canada. And so they were sharing the stage together and they would say this phrase. And I think it was David Platt in particular who would say, and I heard him say it earlier in the week, but he said it in this large gathering. He said, what we really need are 46,000 Antiochs to be raised up in order to finish the Great Commission. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, 46,000, that's how many churches, roughly, are in the Southern Baptist Convention. Can you believe that? 46,000 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention alone. But here was his call, and I was listening. Here was his call that we just don't have churches that exist, but churches that are transformational in the lives of other people. Churches that just don't meet and gather weekly. But churches that meet and gather are healthy and strong and its people are changed to the point where the grace of God that changes its people inside the church begins to reach people outside the church. This is what this church in Antioch does. I got his point. It kind of stuck with me. As a pastor, I'm thinking, wow, it would be great to pastor an Antioch-like Antioch church. I don't know what it means quite yet. I get, I get the gist. So as I'm thinking through that, I remembered there is a book that I started and never finished. Now, I know none of you are in that category. I know you never start books and, and, and don't finish them. I know you're all good in that regard. I know you don't have books on your nightstand that you've never begun, all right? That's me. There's one of these books on my shelf um, just titled Antioch by Jeff Orge. Jeff is the head of Golden Gate Seminary, which... Um, 
was located in San Francisco. They're in the process of moving now. But um, it's a book uh, written about this church at Antioch. And I had begun reading it. I don't know when I picked it up. I don't know if it was in seminary or just after seminary. But I, so I'm thinking through that as David Platt says, uh, 46,000 Antiochs raised up to, get, to finish the Great Commission. And so I'm thinking, thinking, I've got this book, and I'm walking out of the uh, gathering, the room that we were in, and I go down the hallway, and I promise you, I'm not making this up. As I told the first hour, why do preachers and politicians have to always qualify? I'm not making this up, all right? But standing right in front of me was Jeff Orch. <laughs> so I tap him on the shoulder. He doesn't know me from Adam. And I said, um, I, I started reading your book, but I'm going to make a commitment to you that I'm going to jump into this book and, with the potential after hearing David Platt call for churches to be Antioch-type churches, and I'm going to perhaps make a commitment to you that this could be somewhere where we go with our church. He's like, great, that's awesome. <laughs> I, I preach and teach in seminary. This is, this is what I love to hear about local churches. So I come home this summer and I begin pouring through the book of Acts and I begin looking at other things and I said, yeah, this is it. This is where, this is where my heart is that, that we become an, an Antioch church. I called Jeff Orge last week and I just told him, I said, brother, thank you for how you have put this into writing and you're helping our church. He was thrilled. He emails me back with just some things, things that he teaches through and preaches through. And, I, and he said, may, may the Lord bless you guys as you go through this journey together. But the reason we want to go through this journey is just not to get through a six-week series and say, hey, we've got a lot of knowledge. We learned something about this incredible church that was there. We did this church-wide not long ago, if you remember, about the first church in the book of Acts, first church there in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, 3,000 are saved. As we saw in the video, they begin meeting in homes, they begin meeting in smaller places because there are no church buildings for a while, and we saw that first community in Jerusalem, we walked through it together, but now we come to this church just so we don't learn about Antioch and say, wow, what a great, great first century church, what a wonderful wonderful models, more knowledge that we kind of store up, but to say, God, here's my prayer for you and for all of us and for our church. God, what do you need to teach us so that we change our mind and change our hearts so that we become the church you have called us to be? What needs to change? What do we need to learn, Father? What do we need to learn about this church that had not just impact on those believers, as we'll see over the course of the six weeks. Not just impact there in Antioch, but global, far-reaching, eternity-impacting gospel influence. How, how, how do we have that as a church? That's my heart for us. That's my heart for for you personally to be a part of this. So let's begin, let's read, let's try and get an understanding of what this church, how it began and, and get a sense of it so that from this point forward, if you haven't read it already in your life groups, if you haven't already begun to work through this, now we're all together and get a sense of where we're going with this church. And we get it in just a couple of paragraphs. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, read it with me. Now. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. All right, now that's down in Jerusalem. That's 300 miles away. This is headquarters for Christ followers is Jerusalem at this point. 
And there, Stephen is a deacon who was stoned to death because he preached Jesus. And the Jewish leaders there stoned him to death. And there's this persecution and people get scared and people um, are beginning to suffer. And, and some of those individuals, when they see that, that they run. It's okay. This is how the gospel spreads through persecution. And it goes as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And these individuals were speaking the word to no one except the Jews. All right, so here they come into this city. This city's huge. This is the third largest city at this time in the Roman Empire. There's Rome, there's Alexandria, there's Antioch. Five, uh, 500,000 uh, 500, people, half a million people in this city, in Antioch. Modern-day Antioch um, is up near uh, the Syria-Turkish border. You know where all of the refugee situation is, where all those people from Syria are fleeing over into Turkey. It's, it's up there near the Mediterranean Sea. Th this city was, was a massive city. It was a modern city. It was a multicultural city. It worshipped the Greek gods. It was an immoral city. It had, a, it had a label attached to it that it was incredibly immoral. And, and it was just a very, very influential city. And so here's the amazing thing about that very first sentence, that the gospel had not yet reached this city. It's hard to think about in a city that size, that influential. But the gospel has not yet reached there. So here come these people who are, who are being persecuted, and they, they run up to Antioch. There's a Jewish remnant there. A small Jewish remnant has been there for a while. And they begin to speak to their Jewish brothers and sisters and they say, we have, we have found who the true Messiah is. And they, and they speak of Jesus. But then look at it, verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. So, not to leave out the Gentiles who make up the majority of Antioch. Here they come from Cyprus. It's an island in the Mediterranean Sea in North Africa. And so these brothers, these sisters, with uh, Jewish background, they're followers of Jesus. Now they come to Antioch. And so you have this convergence from people who are beyond Antioch. They see that the gospel has never, ever been preached there before. And here they come. And they preach the gospel. Now look what happens. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, beautiful phrase, he comes and he shows up at this place, and people are being converted, and people are sharing the gospel with others, and he sees the grace of God at work. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So he turns to these new converts, he turns to these new believers, and he encourages them, and he says, stay faithful, be steadfast, Verse 24, for he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He had heard about this guy named Saul who had been converted, who was this former, uh, this former Jewish religious leader who was standing there when Stephen was persecuted. Now Saul has come to faith in Christ. He's up in Tarsus, and Barnabas runs to get him, and he brings him back to Antioch. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Verse 26, 
And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. This, this, this is an amazing paragraph. I mean, we see where the gospel shows up. It's never been there before. It goes to Jews and it goes to Gentiles. They begin to grow. The church in Jerusalem hears about it. They send Barnabas. Barnabas comes running. He begins to teach. He begins to exhort. He begins to encourage. They begin to grow up. He goes and gets another leader. He trains up that leader there. And the church is just booming. I don't know if it, how big it's getting, but more and more people are beginning to, to grow and come to faith, and more and more people are growing in faith. Now look at the impact on the city of Antioch. This, I love this simple phrase here. And in Antioch, verse 26, the disciples were first called what? Called Christians. It wasn't in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? It's not in Jerusalem that they're called Christians or Christ ones. It's where? It's in this pagan, immoral, multicultural city, this large, influential city. Now, not where the heart of religion is in Jerusalem, but where the heart of paganism is and secularism and, and worshiping the, the Greek gods and all of, 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 of the effects of a large city. It is there in that city where people are beginning to see these people who are followers of Christ, who, as we'll see over the course of six weeks, are generous people, and they're giving people, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're teaching and training one another, and they're encouraging one another, and they're at the point where people are beginning to recognize them and say to them, they're the Christ ones. I think that's great. They're the Christ ones. Is that what they say about you and me? There's a Christ one. And they're beginning to impact the city. Turn over to chapter 13. Skip over chapter 12. It's back in Jerusalem. Luke's going to take us over now to chapter 13. Look at the first three verses. So this church is continuing to grow. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers. Now here, here come the gifts of the Spirit and here come the leaders of the church. There's Barnabas and Simeon who was called Niger. There's Lucius of Cyrene and there's Manan a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and there was Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, all right, this is, the, this is the heart of this church, to worship, to fast, to seek the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. He, the Holy Spirit comes to this church at Antioch and he says, listen, I want you to set apart two of your key, key leaders and I want you to send them because there are places where the gospel needs to go. And they prayed and they fasted, it says, and they laid their hands on them and then they sent them off. They sent them from Antioch to go where? Well, that's the start of the gospel getting you and me. That's the start of the gospel going from this city just a few miles off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, where Paul and Barnabas would start a missionary enterprise that would go to the ends of the earth. And it continues to this day. The gospel comes to you, and the gospel gets to me because a church was worshiping and praying, a, a church was fasting, a, a church was raising up leaders, a church was being the church and sending people out to get the gospel to where it is not. That is what the church is. It's an amazing story. We're, we're going to look at that over the course of six weeks together. And what I want you to see in that paragraph is the people that made it work. 
the people that were influenced by the gospel who are the ones who made up the church. There were the people who were persecuted and came and, gave, and, and brought the gospel to a place where the gospel never was. There were people who were willing to share the gospel with people just like them, Jews to Jews. But then there were people willing to share the gospel to people who perhaps weren't exactly like them. Jewish believers who would come to the Gentiles. There were people in the church who were willing to use their gifts. They were willing to use what God had given them to teach and to train and to serve. There were people who were willing to be bridges. Barnabas was an encourager. He was the one who would bridge, bringing in new leaders into the church. He was the one who would encourage the church to remain strong and steadfast. There were people who were willing to say, we will go. Barnabas and Saul were the ones, we're leading here, but we will go if the Holy Spirit and the church is the one who says, yes, you will go because we are going to send you out. The church is an amazing compilation of people who have a heart for the gospel and have been changed by it for the sake of getting the gospel to other people. That's what the church is. And it takes many forms, it takes many shapes, it takes, there's many sizes, there's many different ways to practice church. There's many, as we saw in the video, there's many different types and, and there, there are movements within churches and, and there are styles of worship and there are styles of discipling, there are all sorts of things. But the bottom line that we see in Antioch and what we want to see over the course of the next six weeks is that this is a church made up of people who are led and directed by the Spirit of God and by His grace have great transforming effect on their church, on their community, and to the ends of the earth. And that's my heart for Taylors. I, that, that is a biblical church. And that's what we want to see this morning. Now, how, how do we prepare our hearts to get there? How do we prepare our hearts to get there? Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, and we just want to walk through a section where Peter, who during this time, he was in Jerusalem, eventually he'll make his way to Antioch for just a little bit, but Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples in the inner circle there, he writes a letter, his first letter, he has two letters recorded here in the scriptures, and he writes it to churches who are scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. And he writes them because they're suffering and they're struggling, and he wants to remind them in chapter 2 of something very important about who they are and them being the church. Look at it, verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, as you come to Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for it stands in scripture behold I'm laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so the honor is for you who believe in this cornerstone in this Jesus but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and it is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense so they stumble because they disobey the word as they were 
destined to do. So here's what Peter says. He reminds the church and he reminds us. He reminds people scattered. He reminds people to the end of the age. He reminds us that we are a people who are built upon, as a church, the rock, the cornerstone, the foundation, Jesus. And so he says, listen, as you come to him, he says, as you come, as you fellowship, as you are intimate with him, as you connect with him, that's what, that's what the original language means. It means as you are continually coming and knowing Christ intimately, you're connected to this stone, you then become living stones. It happens upon your salvation. It happens when you become a believer, a follower. But as you continually connect with him, that is your life. So as a church member, as someone who is part of Taylor's First Baptist Church, are we, here's a question for all of us, are we connecting to the living Christ continually? Because that is the foundation. That is the cornerstone that is laid. And that is, Jesus said, I will build my church upon this confession that I am the Christ, he told Peter. So Peter, as he's writing this, is probably thinking of that day when he was with Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. So he's thinking, rock, cornerstone, foundation, Christ, as he is, as he is alive and gives life, so he gives it to us who are the living stones and then he forms this spiritual house. The word house there um, is the word that they would use for the Old Testament temple. And he adds the adjective there, spiritual house. So many people think of church, so many would think of, uh, of following Christ as part of a building, part of the temple, part of the, the programmatic structure, the systematic structure of Jewish life and Jewish religion. And that temple would be everything for those people. And so as Peter is writing this, they're thinking, he's not talking about a physical structure when he talks about us as the church. He's not talking about a building. He's not talking about a system. What is he talking about? He is talking about the life that Christ gives to those of us who become living stones and we are gathered into this structure this living structure this this living organism called the church that gets its life in Christ Christ is our life Christ is our foundation and we rest in him we look to him for not only our salvation but sustaining our faith that is what the church is to be built on and and, and here is the challenge for the church down through the ages the challenge for the church is that it doesn't build itself. It doesn't create itself over and over and over again. It doesn't build itself anew and, and adds to anything other than the foundation which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the challenge for all of us. The challenge is for the church of Jesus Christ, for Taylor's First Baptist Church. The challenge is for us to, yes, be innovative and change. We'll see that in just a couple of weeks. The challenge for us is always to be open to methods that will get the gospel out, but the message never, ever changes. The gospel is the same, the message is the same, but how we communicate and move that message out, the methodology, that can change. And the danger is for us to base our identity as a church on things other than Jesus Christ. 
Whether it's our legacy, whether it's our, whether it's our past, whether it's our denomination, whether it's, it's what we've done in the past or what we want to do in the future, here's the danger to say we as our church are this, and if it's not Jesus Christ, then we have missed the principles laid out in Scripture. Church is not a building. It's not a tradition. It's not a style. But it is a living, spiritual group of people connected to the life of Jesus Christ. That is why we must take on his design and that is why we must be structured around him so that we reflect him. Buildings used to reflect the cornerstones that were laid. The cornerstone would establish the design and it would establish the structure of the building. I had to chuckle when I read this past week that over in Washington, D.C., the United States Capitol George Washington laid the cornerstone back in 1793. There's a plaque that says, um, here's where the cornerstone for the United States Capitol is laid, and there's supposed to be a, a silver plate that was put in with the cornerstone. So as the years went by and as the Capitol began to, to grow and to expand and, and, and to change, um, someone said, why don't we find the cornerstone? So they began to dig, and they began to look for the cornerstone, and guess what? They never have found it. It's missing. It, it, it kinda, it, it's where they, they've looked for the silver plate. They have metal detectors. They've dug all around it, but they can't find the cornerstone of the United States Capitol. And I like what one, how someone put it. They said, since the cornerstone was laid, the United States Capitol has been built. It has been burnt. It has been rebuilt. It has been extended. It has been restored. The capital that we see today is the result of several major periods of construction. It stands as a monument to the ingenuity, determination, and skill of the American people. Now, while that might be true, here is my heart for this church in this place, is that we don't build this church based on our own ingenuity and determination and skill. We build this place based on the cornerstone, on the life that Christ gives us. That's the beginning point. But then we also see this, that the church is people made alive by the gospel and the spirit who desire to sacrifice for the glory of Christ. Look at it again there in verse 5. He says, you're the spiritual house. You are to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we look at that word priesthood, a royal priesthood. What, what does a priest do? What does a priest do? So, some of you might think, um, well, that is your job. You're the priest, pastor. You are the one who is to go before us and lead us into the presence of God. Well, there's a point of leader. There's a mantle of leadership on the pastor, absolutely, but, but that's not what he's talking about. You might say, I got it, I got it, I got it, all right. Um, when Jesus died and he um, gave us then by his death, he gave us access to God, to the presence of God. That is true. The book of Hebrews, incredible book, which talks about how when Christ comes, he dies and he gives us access where the priest would, in the past, would only have access to the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. But now, because we place our faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, now we are able, by his sacrifice, to come into the presence of God. We are, in effect, our own priests. 
We are, in effect, someone who can come to God with our hurts and with our needs and with our sins, and we can bow before him and say, here we are, God. We are, in effect, giving ourselves to you. We no longer have to round the priest. I think that's part of it as well. But based on this entire section that Peter is writing, he calls the people a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a nation. You know what I think he's talking about? I think he's talking about this priesthood as a class of people. As a class of people, and this was the job of the priesthood, was to stand between God and the needs of people. It was to go before God and hear from God on behalf of others. And here's what the church is. The church is just not a place where I'm concerned about me. The church is a place where now, because I am alive in Christ, I have a new title. I'm a priest. (laughs) And I, I go before God on behalf of those in need. One writer said, over in the West, we are so concerned about ourselves. We are so individualized. So when we talk about priests, we're so concerned about us and our sins and our needs, and that is true, and that's helpful for us to be able to have access to God. But he says when Peter's writing this, he's writing to a, a group of people who are suffering and who are persecuted, and he's telling them, regardless of what you are going through, do you realize because you are made alive in Christ, you now have the opportunity to go and stand before God on behalf of those who are not alive, who are dead. You have an incredible privilege. This is what the church is. He keeps going. Look at verse uh, 9 and 10. You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. You are blessed. You are blessed immeasurably in Christ to be called all of these things. What incredible privilege. But you know what? This is what it's for. That you may proclaim or you may advertise or you may communicate with your life the excellencies. You may proclaim with your mouth and with your life the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church is made up of people who are called to sacrifice as priests to offer themselves on behalf of the needs of others. But the church is made up of people who are called to proclaim what glorious things God has done in me. He has moved me from darkness into light. He has moved me from a place where I didn't have mercy to a place where I have received his mercy. He's moved me to a place where I've been hopeless and lost. Now I have, I'm filled with hope and now I'm filled with joy. And I'm filled. Do you see why at the beginning of the year we go through the gospel? What is the gospel? 
Talked with a couple this past week. They said, we started coming as you were going through the series. What is the gospel? The reason we go through the series, what is the gospel, is so that we understand who we are in Christ, so that we can be the church, so that we can proclaim with our mouths and with our lives, and we can sacrifice as the priest did. We can give for the sake of seeing people changed. People within the church here people within the walls, people within your life group, people within your Bible studies, people that you see every single week on Sunday or on Wednesdays. Yes, we, we are to give ourselves to one another. We are to offer ourselves as priests. We are to offer spiritual sacrifices. What, we, we are to offer whatever God asks us to give for the sake of those here who can be healthy and who can be strong, just like they did in Antioch. Just as Barnabas and Saul, these teachers and, and the people of Antioch, they gave themselves to one another so they could be healthy and strong, but they gave themselves to one another so that others who don't know the gospel may hear it. They're, they're in Antioch and then beyond, here in Taylor's, here in Greenville, and beyond. Now, now that's what the church is for. That's, this is what the church does. It gathers, and it worships, and it loves, and it builds up, and it grows strong and healthy, not so that it can be a, quote, success, but so that it can be transformational. That's what the church is. As we close, I want you to watch a video, and then we'll join for a time of commitment. Every single week, we might do it at the beginning of the sermon. We might do it at the end. We might do it somewhere in the service. But we want to show you an example, a story, so that as you walk away from here, you can say, oh, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to be someone who has been changed and transformed by the gospel. And that is something that they did? Really? I can do that. I can do something like that. I can give my life in order to be the church and share the glory and the excellency and the grace of God with someone else. Watch the story from a wonderful couple as they minister to the homeless people here in Greenville, South Carolina. Hi, I'm Kelly and this is Bryant Phillips and we are passionate about the homeless ministry at Taylor's First Baptist Church. We found that it's a great way for us to involve our entire family in a ministry. Uh, it gives us an opportunity to outreach to those in our community that often times get overlooked by a lot of the people that they see each and every day. Homelessness is something that is so big I can't even comprehend um, there there's just so many reasons why people find themselves in those situations um, and again I'm still learning um, but many people and myself included thought when I um, started working with this community that this was a choice and many times it is not a choice um, there's many circumstances behind why people find themselves in poverty and homelessness um, and it has become a very big privilege of our family to serve this community. We meet each fourth Saturday of the month in the west end of Greenville. Um, when we first began this, I, I felt like this was going to be kind of a burden on our family because of the time commitment. 
And then I often stop and remind myself that this is one Saturday afternoon, once a month, that's 12 afternoons a year, that's 12 out of 365. It's really not that much. And, um, and then you kind of put things back in perspective of how, how much you can accomplish in a very short amount of time. And another thing that since we've started this, I've just been astounded about how blessed we are as a family, as a nation, as a church, and just to have the opportunity to serve other people that are in a poverty situation, um, it just continues to open our eyes to the needs in our local community, um, open our children's hearts, um, again, to serve others that might not look like they do, and it again is just an opportunity to grow. Just a simple reminder of what God can do with a couple, with children, with a family, one Saturday out of the month for the sake of being the church. What has God called you to? What is God working on your heart in regards to serving and sacrificing and giving? May God do something special in all of us over the course of these next six weeks. Will you pray with me right now? Father, thank you for the stories that we will see of people whose hearts have been changed and desire to see change. And as we come every single week, will you give us the heart of those men and women at Antioch who didn't really know what the church was or what it was supposed to look like <laughs> but yet they give us the model of a place of a people so filled by the Holy Spirit so giving so loving so abandoned to your desire just men and women like us may it be so would you speak to those who are members here, regular attenders here? Would you work in us? For those, Father, who do not know Christ, and I know there are some who are here, may they see the love of Christ, and as we've talked about his death and his burial, his resurrection, his life, they don't know life because they are lost apart from him. So, Father, I pray for them now that you would speak to them. And Lord, may the gospel and grace of Christ displayed on the cross, affirmed in the resurrection, give us life this week. And we pray it in Jesus' name.